thus far in the book of Matthew, we have witnessed Matthew claim that Jesus is the fulfillment of various prophecies. And today we're going to be wrestling with what I would argue is perhaps the most difficult fulfillment prophecy to understand, and that is Jeremiah 31.15. That is the passage where you have Rachel weeping over these exiles of Israel going in to Babylonian captivity. And what's really strange is how Matthew understands that to be fulfillment. What Matthew is going to point out to us today is that this prophecy is ultimately fulfilled in the person and work of Christ because through Jesus Christ, the exile of Israel will one day be over. And as I say that, many of you may be sitting there to think, well, wait a minute, what's the application for me in my life as an American Christian living in the year 2021? Well, I know many of you feel that you're living in the land of exile now as well. As our country becomes more anti-Christian, the world does. Some of you have lost people, and the world becomes more strange to you. The good news for you today is that one day Jesus Christ is going to remove your exile too. In fact, we're going to learn today that Jesus Christ, because he is going to reestablish the kingdom to Israel, will one day wipe away not only the tears of Israel, but he'll wipe away the tears of all who have trusted in Jesus. That's what we're going to learn today. Now, I want to begin here in Matthew 2.16, and I want you to recall that one of the motifs that we see Matthew try to explain that fits the life of Christ is the motif of the Exodus. And I want you to remember that in the Exodus, you had a wicked king named Pharaoh who was opposed to the purposes of God, and he murdered babies. Well, now, in verse 16, we're going to see that there's another wicked king named Herod. He is opposed to the purposes of God, and he is going to murder babies. And that's where we pick it up here. In Matthew 2.16, it says, Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged, and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem, and all its vicinity, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Now, dear ones, I want you to notice in red, it says that Herod here was very enraged because he had been tricked by these Magi. I don't want you to lose sight of the irony that these Magi, remember, they were soothsayers from Babylon, pagans. And ironically, God uses them to protect the Messiah all the while, the king over Judah wants to murder the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah. We shouldn't lose sight of that irony. The other thing I want to point out is notice in red where you see the term enraged. That comes from the Greek term thumoo. And what's interesting about that is that term is used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, for the rage of pagan kings throughout history who were opposed to the purposes of God. Now, I'm not going to have you turn there, but if you're a note taker, maybe jot these verses down. Uh, jot down Isaiah 37, 29. That's where Sennacherib, remember Sennacherib? That's that rascal that tried to sack Jerusalem, trying to wipe out the purposes of God. Well, in Isaiah 37, 29, God says that he was, that is Sennacherib, the pagan king, enraged at God. Same term that's used for Herod's being enraged here. What did God do to Sennacherib? Well, first, he destroyed his army. In one night, he killed 185,000 troops. 
surrounding Jerusalem. And then he sent Sennacherib packing back home where he was murdered by his own family. That's what happens to those who are enraged with God to the end of their life. Now, we also see in Daniel 3.13, Nebuchadnezzar was one who was enraged. Remember, we had Meshach, Shadrach, and as the joke goes, to bed we go. Well, those, those three would not bow their knee to this image that Nebuchadnezzar had created. And so he was enraged. And so all through the Old Testament, you see pagan kings who are opposed to the purposes of God. They're enraged. Now you have Herod, who is enraged and standing against the purpose of God bringing the Messiah into the world. But God wins because he's the Holy One of Israel. He's the greatest warrior of all time. He's the one who is omnipotent and can bring about his purposes. And so one of the passages we should be thinking of when we're thinking of this motif of the raging kings, you remember in Psalm 2? Psalm 2 says that the kings of the earth and their rulers take their stand against the Lord and his anointed. But what does the Lord do? He scoffs and laughs at them from heaven. Why? Because he's all-powerful. That's what we're seeing here. God will bring about his purposes He protects his Messiah. Now, as we proceed now into verses 17 through 18, we are going to wrestle with how does Matthew understand the fulfillment of Jeremiah 31, 15 with the death of these babies in Bethlehem. Notice Matthew continues. He says, Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice, now this is Jeremiah 31, 15 that you see in all caps. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Now, this Old Testament prophecy, what we're going to do first is we're going to wrestle with what it originally meant. Because if we don't know what it originally meant, we're not going to be able to understand how Matthew is applying it. So bear with me. I'm going to spend a little time applying how it was originally interpreted. First of all, this Jeremiah 31.15 is found in a section of Jeremiah chapters 30 through 31 that had to do with the hope of the restoration of Israel. And so, yes, you have here what seems to be bad news in this particular verse. That is Jeremiah 31.15. Why? Because here Rachel is metaphorically depicted. Remember who Rachel is. Let's not forget that. Rachel was the wife of Jacob, the favorite wife. And as such, she functions as the prototypical wife of Israel or mother of Israel. She is the mother of Israel par excellence. And so she is depicted as weeping from her grave, metaphorically, because she was already dead, for these exiles who are being taken from Judah into Babylonian captivity. But in the context, what I want you to see is that there's great hope because in Jeremiah 30 through 31, the point is that time of weeping is going to be short-lived because one day in the new covenant, through the work of the Messiah, God will get rid of the exile of Israel. That's the point. So one of the things I want to point out here is I want to point out that one of the clues that we have as to how Matthew understands this is found in what you see in the box. What I believe is this prophecy is not a typological, or excuse me, it's not a direct prophecy. Okay, remember a direct prophecy would be Micah 5.2. Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem. 
voila, he's born in Bethlehem. That's a direct prophecy. There's also called applications of Old Testament words. We'll see that next week when Jesus is called a Nazarene. It's a play on the idea that he is the branch of David. But here, this is certainly a typological prophecy. Let me explain why that's important. What Matthew sees is that there was a pattern in Jeremiah's day that happens in the day of Jesus. So you and I are to discover what that pattern is. And one of the clues that I think we're given is the city which is called Ramah. Now, Ramah was five miles to the north of Jerusalem. Bethlehem, where the babies are murdered by Herod, was five miles to the south of Jerusalem. So certainly, Matthew's point is not geographical. They don't line up. But what Ramah was in the minds of the Israelites, it was a city that was in their national memory as a city of great sorrow. In fact, one way to think about this is Ramah was to the Israelites as Waterloo was to Napoleon. Because it was at Ramah that the Assyrians broke through in the 700s BC to sack the people of Judah. It was at Ramah, according to Jeremiah 40 verse 1, where the Israelites were gathered by the Babylonians to be brought into Babylonian captivity. And Ramah, the very burial place of Rachel, the depiction there is she was weeping metaphorically from her womb as all of the promises of God seemed to be done, Israel's in Babylonian captivity. But again, what you have to see is that the whole passage of Jeremiah 31.15 is surrounded by good news. The point of it is that this exile won't last very long. One day God is going to remove the exile forever. So I want to prove that to you. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Jeremiah 31, verse 1. Jeremiah 31, verse 1. I want you to turn to that. Now, the reason I want to do so is I want you to see that in context, all of Jeremiah 30 and 31 is about good news. The exile is going to come to an end. No longer will Rachel be weeping for her children. That's the idea. Jeremiah 31, 1. Notice it begins, it says, at that time declares the Lord. Let me stop there. What time is he referring to? He's referring to what we would call the future day of the Lord, even in our day. The 70th week of Daniel, the last seven years, into the, millennium, the millennial kingdom. We'll be talking about the millennial kingdom today in our application. So at that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. That's good news. The exile is going to be over. Now, forward, if you will, in your Bible to Jeremiah 31, 16. This is one verse after the one that we see on the screen that Matthew's quoting. Jeremiah 31, 16. I hope you have your Bibles open. Notice the good news. It says, thus says the Lord, restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord, and they will return from the land of the enemy. Do you see the good news? So here's how I think Matthew understood the pattern. In Rachel's day, metaphorically, when the exile happened, remember she's dead in her tomb, she is weeping because of the exile of Israel. In Matthew's day, you had mothers in Bethlehem were weeping because this monster Herod murdered their children. Are you with me? And it seems like bad news, and it is. But what the promise that Matthew sees is that in the person and work of Jesus Christ, 
this promised ending of the exile will be fulfilled. When he sets up his kingdom, there will be no more tears for the people of God. There will be a restoration of the promises that were given to Israel, that were given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the tears of God's people will be forever removed. That's what Matthew understands, that in the person and work of this baby who was born in Bethlehem, Jesus, who later grows up in Nazareth, all of the promises of God in Jeremiah 30 and 31 and in the entire Old Testament, they are fulfilled. The exile will be over. The tears will be removed. Now, sometimes I think it helps to visually see the principles that Matthew is deriving from the Old Testament. So let me put it this way. Jeremiah 31.15, what's it about? I'm just giving you a basic gloss. It's about Rachel metaphorically weeping over the exiles of Israel, being brought into Babylonian captivity. But it's in the context of hope. There's hope. Why? It's going to end one day. And so what Matthew sees is when he cites Jeremiah 31.15 and Matthew 2.18, Rachel's women are weeping again. Who are they? They're the women of Bethlehem. Why? Because their children really are no more. They're murdered. But it's in the context of hope. Why? Because in the person and work of Messiah, all these troubles will one day end. That's how Matthew understands it. One day in the person and work of Christ, you won't lose your children to a wicked king like Herod. Because when Jesus comes, there's a new sheriff in town. He's the king of kings, the holy one of Israel, the greatest warrior the world has ever seen. And when he comes and rules and reigns, the swords will be beat into plowshares and the spears into pruning hooks, and the nations shall no longer learn war. That's the good news. Now, what's interesting is Matthew certainly sees then that the ending of the exile is something exceedingly significant. And what we should be predisposed in seeing is that even in Matthew's genealogy, the idea of the deportation or exile is a big deal to him. If Eric Dauma wrote the genealogy of Jesus, I would include, I think I would include, hopefully, Abraham, Moses, the Exodus, but I would probably leave out the exile. Why? Because I'm not an Israelite. The deportation of the Jews was a big deal to them because it seemed to question all the promises of God. And I want you to remember that back in Matthew 1.17, he crafts, that is Matthew, the resolution of the deportation or the exile by being resolved by Messiah. Notice what he says. He alludes to it. Matthew 1.17, he said, So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, there's the exile, 14 generations. And notice in red, from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. What is going to resolve the exile or the deportation? The Messiah. If you have the Messiah, one day you will not be exiled. You will be restored. That's the promise that Matthew is showing us, all fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. In the person and work of Christ, Israel will have her kingdom again, and all the tears of God's people will be removed. Now, let's talk about some applications. I have two points for you here this morning. Number one, believers must know that we have been grafted in to Israel's promises. The moment you believed in Jesus Christ, you became a partaker of all of the promises that are in the future for Israel. Why is that important? 
Because if you don't know that, then Matthew 2.18 isn't good news for you. Because Matthew 2.18 is proclaiming that the exile of Israel will be over in the person and work of Christ. But if you think that you're, way, well, I'm a Gentile Christian, I'm living in America, the year 2021, so what? But if you know that those promises are your promises too, then you can and should be excited. All right, let me show you number two. We, and this is believers, we can be assured that Israel's kingdom will be restored and that's God's people will have their tears wiped away. This will begin in the millennial kingdom, but it finds its ultimate fruition and fulfillment even in the eternal states. And I'll show you at the end a quote in the passage about the new Jerusalem. Now, I want to first prove to you that every single believer in Jesus Christ has a partaker in the promises of future Israel. Now, why is that important? Again, if we don't know that, Matthew 2.18 doesn't seem like good news to us. So what I want to do is I wanted to turn your attention to some passages that clearly state how we as believers in Jesus Christ under the new covenant are partakers in the promises that are coming to Israel. If there's one passage I could appeal to that just succinctly states it, it's Romans 11:17. Now, let me explain the significance of Romans 11. Do you remember if you've read the book of Romans recently, in Romans chapter 8, at the very end, Paul gives this beautiful promise that nothing can separate the believer from the love of Christ. Meaning one day we're going to be given our resurrected bodies. One day we're certainly going to inherit the kingdom. But there's a thorny question that must be answered. If it's true that God is good for all of his promises that he has made to us, what about the promise that he made to Israel? Has God really honored that promise? So what Paul does from Romans 9 to 11 is he answers that question, what has God and what will God do about the promises he made to Israel? So he begins in Romans 9. And Paul lays out that, first of all, not all of Israel really was Israel. That ultimately, those who are part of this kingdom are going to be those who are believers in Jesus, whether they're Jew or Gentile. And being a partaker of the future kingdom is not determined by merely being a physical descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's something that's for the elect. But then when you get to the end of Romans 11, and I'll be sharing this with you, he's got a promise that one day all Israel en masse as a nation will come to faith in the Messiah. But here in Romans 11:17, Paul wants to make sure that Gentile Christians are not haughty or arrogant against the Jews, for it is the promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that undergird our promises. And so he uses this analogy and metaphor of the olive tree. Listen to what Paul says. Romans eleven seventeen. he says, But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, that's the Gentile believer, and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. Now, I'm going to stop there. I want to talk about Paul's metaphor. In fact, let me pull up my pointer here. First of all, notice the image of the olive tree. Does everyone see that on the screen? That's an image, a metaphor of Israel. That's what he's using it for. It stands for Israel. Now, I also want you to see that he also talks about the rich root of the olive tree. Those are the promises that were given to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So, 
you and I as Gentile believers, and by the way, I know there's some Jewish believers here as well, but primarily we're a Gentile audience. We are those who are called what? A wild olive branch. Okay, we didn't naturally belong, right? But notice the great promise is that we were grafted in. And we were grafted into what? The promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, what does it mean that you and I were grafted in? Those who didn't belong to the olive tree. What it means is that the moment you trusted upon Jesus Christ, doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter what kind of job you have, what kind of gender you have, what kind of skin color you have. The moment you trusted in Jesus Christ, you were grafted into the promises given to Israel and also the persecutions of Israel. The promises and the persecutions. Now, how many want to say the promises sound a lot better? <laughs> I agree. The persecutions don't sound good, but they're, they're short-lived. That's the point. Now, what kind of promises are you and I in for the moment we trusted in Jesus Christ? Well, I want to allude to some of them from the Old Testament and show you that they will literally be fulfilled. They're not spiritually going to be fulfilled or figuratively going to be fulfilled. They will literally be fulfilled. So turn your Bibles, if you will, to Jeremiah 33, 15. Jeremiah 33, 15. And I want you to turn there because I want you to see that these promises that were laid in the Old Testament that have never yet been fully realized will one day, all because of what Christ has done. And these are your promises that is for those who trusted in Jesus, whether you're Jew or Gentile. Jeremiah 33, 15. Notice what it says. It says, and I hope I, you have all turned there. I hope I've given enough time. Sometimes you forget people have to turn pages. So I'll listen to the pages stopping. Sounds pretty good to me. Jeremiah thirty-three fifteen, God promises this. He says, in those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. Now, notice when he says at the very beginning, in those days and at that time, again, that's a reference to the future day of the Lord, future to us. The 70th week of Daniel ultimately into the millennial kingdom and even on into the eternal states. All right. Now, who is this righteous branch of David? We're going to be focusing on that next week in our sermon. That is a description of the Messiah. The Davidic tree, the Davidic kingdom was considered to be like a big massive tree that had fallen because of sin but there's going to be this little branch that comes up. That's the Messiah. So the promise is that when the Messiah comes, he's going to execute justice and righteousness on the earth, meaning that one day you're not going to have tyrants like Herod who murder little baby boys. You're not going to have that anymore. It's going to be all done away with. And you and I the moment you believed in Jesus, are going to be partakers of this kingdom that is coming upon the earth, where Jesus will reign headquartered in Jerusalem. Turn to another one. Turn your Bibles to Ezekiel 37, 25. And again, I want you to see that you, even you as Gentile believers, are partakers of this promise. Ezekiel 37, 25. Notice the promise that he's given, that is God, to the people of God. Ezekiel 37, 25, he says, They will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant. Stop there. Why is that good news in light of Matthew chapter 2? 
because the citation from Jeremiah 31.15 was Rachel weeping that the Israelites were brought out of the land. But the promise is that in Messiah, this is going to be reversed. They will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it. They and their sons and their sons' sons forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. Who is David the prince? That's the Messiah. He is going to rule and reign literally over a reestablished Israel. Those are the promises that you and I have to look forward to. That one day our exile will be over as the Messiah reigns and rules upon the earth. Now, I want to show you another passage that shows us that, yes, indeed, Gentile believers are full partakers of these promises. Remember in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul was talking about the one new man, meaning both the Jew and the Gentile brought together. No more Mosaic law that separated through Sabbath, circumcision, and the food laws. No, both are brought together. And then in Ephesians 2.13, Paul talks about the Gentile. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you, that's the Gentile, who formerly were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Does everyone see on the screen that phrase, you who were formerly far off? Why are Gentiles considered far off? Because we didn't have the patriarchs, the covenants, and the promises. That's why we were far off. But notice the moment you trusted in Jesus Christ, what happened? You have been brought near. Does everyone see that phrase in blue, brought near? That phrase is used in Leviticus chapter 8 and 9 of the Aaronic priesthood who were brought near to God to serve him first in the tabernacle, later in the temple. And according to 1 Peter chapter 2, you and I are now that priesthood. We have been brought near and partakers of all of the promises that were given to Israel. Now, as I say these things, I want you to realize, sadly, there are many Christian denominations that do not believe these promises that were given to us are literally going to be fulfilled. They believe that they're spiritually going to be fulfilled. Now, when these promises are going to be first fulfilled, it's in something called the millennial kingdom. So what I want to do for you is I want to lay out the different versions of the millennial kingdom as different Christians and denominations understand them. And I'm going to show you why it's important to be a premillennial believer. It's because that's what the Bible teaches. Now, first of all, for those of you that are new to the Bible, what in the world is the millennium? By the way, it's not the millennium falcon, for those of you that are Star Wars lovers. And millennium simply is the Latin term for a thousand. But it comes from the Greek term in Revelation 20, verse 4, kilioi. The Greek term means a thousand. And what the Bible promises, and I'll show you and I'll prove it to you, is that it's promised one day Jesus Christ is going to reign for a thousand years over a reestablished kingdom that will be on earth headquartered in Israel. And when he does so, all of the hurts and the exile will indeed be over. So let me lay out the various views. And sadly, I think we should be unanimous because the data is so clear, but Christendom is broken over this. First of all, amillennialism. Amillennialism, by the way, the term says what it means. If you're an atheist with the alpha privative, you don't believe in the theos, the God. The amillennialist does not believe in the millennium. 
They believe that the thousand-year reign of Christ over restored Israel is figurative of the church age. They believe it's happening now. <laughs> Thank you for the uh-oh. <laughs> Very good. It is an uh-oh. That's a problem. Why? Because all of the promises that I read to you are not literally going to be fulfilled. They don't believe it. They believe that they're being spiritually fulfilled in the church now. Well, how are things going in the world? Are they getting better? I don't think so. Now, what I want you to understand is I'm going to talk about some of the problems with amillennialism, but I want to turn your attention to a scholar who taught this named Louis Burkhoff. Louis Burkhoff was a Reformed theologian. He died in 1957. He lived a full life. Um, He was born in the 1800s. And in 1938, he wrote a systematic theology. By the way, I love Louis Burkhoff. I've learned a lot of things from him. And so I consider him a brother in Christ, and one day I'll see him with the Lord. But here, I would disagree with him. He's an amillennialist. I want you to listen to what he says. And again, take note that this is written in 1938. I'll give you the whole quote. Louis Burkhoff, he says this regarding the millennium. He says, quote, Both the Old and the New Testament speak of a future conversion of Israel. Then he rightly cites various verses, Zechariah 12.10, Zechariah 13.1, Romans 11. And he goes on to say, these seem to connect this with the end time. Premillennialists, he goes on to say, have exploited the scriptural teaching for their particular purpose. They maintain that there will be a national restoration and conversion of Israel, that the Jewish nation will be reestablished in the Holy Land, and that this will take place immediately preceding or during the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Now listen to what he says. He disagrees with it. He says, it is very doubtful, however, whether Scripture warrants the expectation that Israel will finally be reestablished as a nation and will, as a nation, turn to the Lord, unquote. Think about that last line. He thinks it's doubtful that Israel will ever be reestablished as a nation or return to the Lord in faith. Now, when did he write this, Louis Burkhoff? 1938. What happened 10 years later that was somewhat significant? Israel was reborn as a nation. God did that. And so I wonder if Louis Burkhoff maybe gave a later addition saying, uh, I'd like to change my mind on that. Dear ones, if God was faithful to bring about the restoration of Israel, is he also going to bring about the belief by the whole nation in the Messiah? Yes, he will. He's literally going to bring about those promises. Let me talk about two problems with amillennialism. The first is that it takes literal prophecy about Jesus Christ's second coming, and it says it should be understood figuratively, not literally. Well, let's ask ourselves the question, when it comes to the rules of interpretation, what precedent has been set? A literal fulfillment or a figurative fulfillment? The literal, we're right, figurative, they're right. Well, let's see. In Matthew one twenty two, when J- Matthew says that Jesus fulfilled Isaiah 7.14, the virgin birth prophecy, was that a figurative or a literal fulfillment that Jesus was born of a virgin? It was literal. When Micah 5.2 predicts Messiah to be born in Bethlehem, where was Jesus born? He was literally born in Bethlehem. When Zechariah 11.12 says Messiah be betrayed by 30 pieces of silver, was that fulfilled figuratively or literally? Literally. Judas betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. Zechariah 9.9 says when Messiah comes, he comes riding in to Jerusalem on a donkey. 
What did Jesus ride into Jerusalem on? A donkey. Is it figurative or is it literal? And we could go on and on and on. All of the promises regarding the prophecies of the first coming were literally fulfilled. But all of a sudden, we're to take that and throw it out the window through a grand form of special pleading and say, well, that's not going to apply to the prophecies regarding the second coming. They're not literally going to be fulfilled. They're only figuratively going to be fulfilled. Well, where are we tipped off that the hermeneutic or rules of interpretation have changed? No. As Christ fulfilled literally the promises concerning his first coming, he will fulfill the promises regarding his second coming. Second, I want you to consider this. If God won't literally fulfill the promises to Israel, why should you and I trust that he will literally give us our promises, namely the resurrection? I don't know about you, but I don't want a figurative resurrection. I want a literal one. The more I look into the mirror as I'm getting older, I need the literal one. The figurative won't do. Brothers and sisters, God is literally going to bring about his promises. And I'm going to prove to you on the next slide that indeed, premillennialists have the better reading of Revelation 20, verse 4. Now, let's talk about postmillennialism, or as I like to describe it, those who have a very keen belief that you and I are good, right? These are the people who believe that you and I are good people. Why? Because we're going to Christianize the planet. Postmillennialism says that the earth will be Christianized, which will lead to a thousand-year reign of peace after which Christ returns. All right, so the idea here is that you and I are going to be so successful that as Christians around the world, we're going to Christianize the planet. It's going to lead to a beautiful time of peace for a thousand years. It's going to get great and wonderful. And Jesus just simply comes at the end of our kingdom that we've built for him, and he just sits on the throne. But let's compare that with what the scriptures teach. When Jesus says in Matthew 24, 22, regarding the last seven years, the 70th week of Daniel, does he say it's going to get better or worse? No, he says, unless those days be cut short, no flesh would survive. It's going to be so bad, so pagan, so evil in the last seven years that if Jesus didn't cut the time period short, no one would live. It doesn't sound like we're going to be Christianizing the planet. Luke 18, 8 Jesus says, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? The rhetorical question demands that we would say, it's going to be a rare thing. Does that sound like we are going to be Christianizing the planet? No. So the view that I think is biblical, Bob and I and the elders here at Gospel of Grace are premillennialists. Premillennialism says that Christ will return and establish a literal thousand-year rule over the earth headquartered in Israel. Premillennialism says Jesus comes and makes the kingdom for us. Postmillennialism say we build it for him, which is true according to the scriptures. No, when we look at premillennialism, that is the straightforward reading of the text of scripture. Now, the primary text that you and I have to wrestle with, there's a lot of texts that I think teach about the millennial kingdom, but the one that every single Christian must know and wrestle with is Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. Because it's there where we see the reference to the thousand-year reign. Let me put it up on the screen. By the way, the context here, Revelation 20, it's all about believers who came to faith in the last seven years. I believe that believers will be raptured prior to the 70th week, 
but graciously, God will bring people to faith during the 70th week. And as they come to faith, they will be martyred by the Antichrist. And so what John wants you to know is that they are not going to miss out on the blessing of the first resurrection. They're going to be partakers of it too. Revelation 20, verse 4, this is after the return of Christ to set up his kingdom. He says, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, again, let me tie this back to Matthew. Matthew 2.18, the promise is when Messiah comes, he's going to bring the kingdom, no more exile. What Revelation is telling us is this will occur for a thousand years as Christ reigns upon the earth. So the debate in this text between the amillennialist and the premillennialist, is that literally going to happen? I'll tell you a story. Years ago when I was at Bible college, my wife and I went together. I was an airline pilot at the time, and I could go every week. We would learn the Bible in this four-year program that we were doing. And we had a beautiful teacher. He was just a great teacher of the scriptures and hermeneutics, a professor, Randy Nelson. If he's listening, thanks for all of the expertise, Dr. Nelson. Well, I'll never forget, he was teaching us, and he was the only one who knew Greek. We were all just stuck in the English at that time. We're in a four-year program. And I remember he got to Revelation 20, verse 4, and he said, it says that they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And he goes, do you know what that means in the Greek? And we're all hanging on every word. What does it mean? Give us the inside scoop. And he says it meant that they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. (laughs) Well, got that in my English Bible. I don't need the Greek, I guess. It means what it says. It means what it says. Now, the amillennialist is going to say, no, it doesn't mean that. And the big passage or little section of debate centers on this phrase, they came to life. It comes from the verb zao, which means to live. And what I'm saying as the premillennialist is obviously this is a bodily resurrection, but the amillennialist says not so fast. And what they try to say is two different things. The amillennialists don't all agree. The first position the amillennialists will take, some of them, is they will say this coming to life is not a physical resurrection, but it is being brought to faith or spiritual life. It is synonymous with what we would refer to as regeneration, the bringing people to faith. Now, what's the problem with that? Well, in the context, why were these people beheaded that John's talking about? Well, they're beheaded because they were believers in Jesus. Well, they were already believers. So then why is the claim by some amillennialists that they're coming to faith here? That's the whole purpose of them or reason they were beheaded. Why were these people beheaded? Because of their testimony of Jesus. They believed. So this can't be them coming to faith. They already had faith. That's the whole purpose of them being killed. The world didn't like them. So that can't be the correct answer. It can't be regeneration or coming to faith in Jesus. That's the whole reason these people were martyred in the first place. So many amillennials get that, and they say, well, no, this coming to life must mean life in the intermediate state. Listen carefully. What's the intermediate state? The intermediate state is that state that before the rapture or the resurrection, if you die, your body goes to, into the ground, but your soul goes to be with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So this is 
the amillennialist view that this coming to life is just believers entering heaven. The problem with that is notice the first underline. They were beheaded. Why is that important? Because people were physically beheaded, you would expect a physical resurrection. They weren't spiritually beheaded, were they? No, they were physically beheaded. In fact, in the very next verse in Revelation 20, verse 5, the term resurrection is used, anastasis. And certainly it has to refer to a physical resurrection because these people were physically beheaded. What sense would it make by the author to say, yeah, they were physically beheaded, but they had a spiritual resurrection? What kind of rules of hermeneutics, rules of interpretation would lead you to that? Changing the categories halfway through the passage? No, the physical beheaded means it has to be a physical resurrection. And so, dear brothers and sisters, what's being promised here is that all believers in Jesus Christ will be raised from the dead, even if you end up coming to faith during this last seven years, and you will reign with Christ for a thousand years. And you and I should be predisposed from knowing the scriptures that this reign with Christ will be upon the earth. Do you know why? We've been praying for it. We've been praying for it for how long? Remember the disciples asked Jesus, teach us how to pray. And Jesus says, don't pray in vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. So what do we do with the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hell be the name. <laughs> we tear it into a vain thing in repetition. Well, let's think about it for a moment. Jesus says, pray like this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Next verse, he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What are we praying for? That the kingdom, which is in heaven now, it is in the new Jerusalem. That's where the kingdom is. It's coming to earth. We've been praying for it for how many thousands of years? This is something that Jesus is going to bring about. He's going to answer this prayer. Now, if you're a careful interpreter of the book of Revelation, you should also be predisposed to know that that reign for a thousand years in Revelation 20, verse 4, is going to be upon the earth. You know why? Because Revelation 5.10 tells us. The 24 elders, they're crying out praises to God on the throne and Jesus the Lamb. And they cry out in the throne room. They say, you have made them, that is believers, to be a kingdom and priest to our God. And they will reign where? Upon the earth. Dear ones, tying this back to Matthew 2.18, Matthew's showing us that there's a time when the Messiah is going to restore the promises literally to Israel. There's no longer going to be a time where Rachel weeps. There's no longer going to be a time where you have mothers in Jerusalem who lose their, or excuse me, in Bethlehem, who lose their children to a wicked king like Herod. We will reign upon the earth. Now, what I want to do is talk about the promises then that are coming to Israel. And I want you to know that the promises given to Israel are only going to be in effect for those who believe in Jesus. If someone does not believe in Jesus, they are not going to be a partaker of this kingdom. But I want to show you that the promise that God has given is one day in Mass, he's going to bring all Israel to faith in the Messiah. And we see that promise in Romans eleven twenty six through 28. 
And again, I'm going to show you that the only way to understand this text is literally. Romans 11, 26 through 28. Notice Paul says, And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. By the way, that's Isaiah 59, 20. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. The big debate in this text is over the first section in blue, all Israel. Now, we believe here at Gospel of Grace that all Israel is national ethnic Israel. But there was a man named John Calvin, and John Calvin had a lot of things right. But what he claimed back in the 16th century was that all Israel here was not national ethnic Israel, but he claimed that all Israel was every believer, Jew and Gentile. That is, every believer in the gospel. So he spiritualized it. There's two problems with that and why Calvin is wrong. Number one, Paul has just used up until this point in Romans 11:26 Israel nine times. And each time he uses Israel referring to national ethnic Israel. If all of a sudden he were to switch it to some spiritual entity, namely every believer, Jew and Gentile, he would have to give you some contextual clue that he's doing so. Has he? No. But the coup de grace that proves that all Israel must be national ethnic Israel is found in verse 28. Notice he describes Israel. He says, from the standpoint of the gospel, what they are enemies for your sake. Don't miss this. Who is Israel to Paul? Enemies, notice on the screen, enemies of the gospel. Well, how could Calvin be right? Remember, Calvin says, all Israel is every believer in the gospel. Well, how can you be a believer in the gospel and an enemy of the gospel at the same time and in the same relationship? That is a clear violation of the law of non-contradiction. You can't be a believer in the gospel and an enemy of the gospel. John Calvin made a contradiction. John Calvin is wrong. All Israel is national ethnic Israel. They were the ones who were the enemies of the gospel. But the great promise, therefore, that Paul is giving us is one day God is going to restore them in mass and he's going to bring them to saving faith in the Messiah. When will that occur? In the 70th week of Daniel. He's going to bring that about. And that is a fulfillment of Zechariah 12.10. In fact, turn your Bibles to Zechariah 12.10. I want you all to be aware of Zechariah 12.10 because you have to ask yourself, if Paul is in error, well, then how is Zechariah 12.10 ever going to be fulfilled? Zechariah 12.10, this is a promise, again, that's going to be literally fulfilled. Zechariah 12.10, please turn your Bibles there. This is about all Israel coming to faith in the Messiah. And again, we see evidence of this in Revelation 11. They will come in the last seven years. Zechariah 12.10, The Lord says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. Notice the purpose statement. Why is God going to pour out his spirit upon them? So that they will look on me whom they have pierced. Stop there. Just stop right there. Do you know that that was fulfilled with Jesus on the cross? John 19 
I believe it's verse 37 if I recall. John cites that verse so that you and I know that's the Messiah. But then he stops the quotation. He doesn't finish the rest of it. Why? Because notice what the rest of it says. This doesn't happen until the second coming. It says, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. The national mourning is one in which they come to repentance and belief that they had crucified the Lord of glory. They will come to faith in the Messiah. That's exactly what Paul's teaching in Romans eleven twenty six. Dear ones, why does this matter? Because Matthew said to us today in Matthew two eighteen that in the person and work of Christ, the exile of Israel will be over. And what you have to be convinced of is that these promises are literally going to be fulfilled. Otherwise, Matthew 2.18 doesn't make any sense. You might as well tear that page out too. But it will happen. That's the great news. Brothers and sisters, not only is this going to happen in the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ, but remember there will be a final rebellion. Christ calls down fire upon those in rebellion. He throws the enemies into the lake of fire at the end of Revelation 20. Then he brings a new heavens, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem. And there we read this in the New Jerusalem, Revelation 21, 3 through 4. John says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. What Matthew wanted us to understand today is that one day when the Messiah comes a second time, there really will be no more pain or weeping for the people of God. I don't know about you. I know some of you here feel like exiles in the land that you live in. Our country has drastically changed. What you have to know is that one day the exile for the people of God will be over. For those of you that have lost loved ones recently, you have to know that there's a day that's coming in the resurrection, in the kingdom, in the eternal states, when every tear really will be wiped away. All because of a baby boy born in Bethlehem that was spared, the Lord Jesus Christ. Dear ones, one day, because of him, all of our tears will be wiped away. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for these promises. We thank you that in Jesus Christ, all the promises are literal, and that we can trust in these things as the basis of our hope. As we lose loved ones in this life, Lord, you remind us in your word that we do grieve, but not as those with no hope. We thank you for the hope of the promised kingdom, the eternal states, and the resurrection. I pray, Heavenly Father, that these words would comfort, comfort my dear brothers and sisters and enable us to persevere into that day that you come for us through the clouds. I pray, Heavenly Father, for our leadership in our nation. We do pray that we could live peaceful lives and be about the gospel. But even so, let the conditions in this world make us look up and say, Come, Lord Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have the privilege and the honor of sharing the Lord's Supper together today. And so we're going to be doing that. Now, the way we do it now at Gospel of Grace 
is we're going to have ushers that will bring you up to the front, and we will partake. There's going to be a little wafer, and then a little cup. And once you drink the cup, there'll be a little wastebasket that you'll be able to throw that into. And then we will uh, do some songs, and I will give the benediction at the end, pray, etc. But then we want to invite you down to a fellowship meal after the service so that we can fellowship with one another further. So let me begin by giving the words of institution that you see. I think you see them on the screen. Yes, I hope I have the same version. I'm reading from the ESV here. Big print edition because my eyes are failing. That's why we need the literal resurrection, right? 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. Paul said this. He said, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, let's stop there. The body, and we're going to be eating the bread here, which symbolizes the body, was broken as a substitution for us. Jesus Christ, the just, on behalf of us, the unjust. That's the imagery here. There's substitution. Notice verse 25. He says, In the same way he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And dear ones, notice the cup is a symbol of Jesus' shed blood. He died as a substitutionary death on our behalf so that you and I could be partakers of the new covenant. We can have forgiveness of sins and the absolute assurance of resurrection life in a literal kingdom that's coming. Notice at the end, he also says, do this, and as often as you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. One day, we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper, called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb, in the future kingdom. So this dinner is a foreshadowing of that. It's a foreshadowing that one day we're going to be partakers of the Marriage Supper of the Lamb with the Messiah. So let's bow our heads in prayer and give thanks. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you would send your Son that he would die on the cross on our behalf. Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you're going to one day bring this kingdom in which you and I will recline at the table. All believers will be there at the great marriage supper of the Lamb. We thank you for these things, Lord. We thank you for these promises. We pray that these things would enable us to persevere. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.